you here this morning but the gift is not like the trespass for if the many died by the trespass of the one man how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man Jesus Christ overflow to the many Romans 5 verse 15 we're going to have the video series this evening at 6 p.m. Figure foods as usual. Prayer meeting Wednesday at 7. Andrea's number. Thank you for your giving. And days and praise, uh, let me see, days of praise uh, are here as well as uh, acts and facts. Um, I don't think there was anything else. Phil, did you want to, did you have a date for the deacons meeting? I was thinking possibly about two weeks. Two weeks? What would that be? That, is that the first of March, first Sunday? Is that first Sunday? That's the eighth of March. So that's second Sunday. Okay. I just didn't know, didn't want to run it into the communion service. So, so two weeks, eighth of March, deacons and elders. Great. Anything else? Uh, oh no, I'm looking over them. Thank you very much. It couldn't be any bigger. <laughs> Whew, you need a new guy. You're invited to a church movie night Friday, March the 13th at the Armstrong home, and that would be from 6 p.m. until 9, $3 a person, and there'll be, that's, that's to cover the subs and pop. So... What? Oh. oh, you'll have to come to find out. <laughs> Murder Mystery Night uh, has been rescheduled. It's May the 30th.
So get that on your calendar. You got you got time to prepare for that. May the thirtieth. <laughs> I don't know. It might snow that day. It'll be like this year, wouldn't it? Okay. Scripture for meditation, Genesis 3, read 1 to 15. Let's stand together and ask the Lord to bless us as we worship. Ed, can I ask you this morning? Thanks. Father God, thank you for the privilege 
ambassador function this year. Be with those who couldn't be here. Be the sick, pray for the healing, Lord. Thank you. Watch over us in so many ways we can come to be with our president, with our leadership in this country. I pray for children. True. We'll continue to develop. Bless our service and have our praises in Jesus' name. Will you take your Trinity hymnal this morning, your red hymnal, and turn to number 164, 164 in the red.
I will be done, and I also add, I submit subject and surrender. My own. Take, take my life. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right, 379, Heather Brown.
camp was really fun this year. The new speaker, I think, was Mr. Morrissey. Am I right in that? Mr. Morrissey. Um, we focused on Elijah this year. He was really interesting in the way he spoke, but it was nice to see him interact with the kids in more hands-on activities during his lessons. Kept them entertained, I say entertained in a engaging way. It was nice to see that. Uh, my camp this year was pretty interesting also. Like Rachel said, we got in the book of Elijah. But uh, one thing I will admit I struggled a little bit when it came to listening, but I do think he was a really good pastor. He was very interesting. Um, he liked to jump around a bit when it came to lessons. <laughs> like one day was about pleasing God. The next day was about like choosing your side, whether you're going to be a part of this world or a part of him. But uh, even though he did jump around, I really liked his lessons, and I had a very good year this year, and hope he comes back. Um, this was, uh, a, I don't know how many years I've been going to this, but it's, it's up there in numbers. <laughs> anyway, um, this year, as has already been mentioned, we had Tim Morrissey as our speaker. And um, one of the passages that he spoke on was uh, in 1 Kings chapter 17, Elijah predicts a drought. And so um, he went to Ahab and said, As the Lord God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall neither be dew nor rains in years except by my word. And uh, uh, Mr. Morse talked about uh, how Elijah didn't want to do that because, you know, Ahab was like this guy who was going to kill him. But um, one of the points that he made was that Elijah simply obeyed no matter what the circumstance was. And, like, that has been a struggle for me. So, and that was, like, one of the things that I took out of what he was talking about, and it was really great. I also, this year, got to help with song leading again with Mama C, and that was really amazing to stand there and listen to everybody sing all of these amazing songs and then just worship God, and it was so phenomenal. So that's all I have to say. This year I had a lot of fun reconnecting with my friends at camp, and um, uh, talk. it's nice to have some friends our age that um, know the same thing that um, is going on in our lives, and to reconnect with, oh, reconnect over the Bible with. Um, one of the key things that our um, speaker said was a prayer and the importance of it. And it really struck me because I was struggling with my prayer and what I should say or what I need to be asking for. And I think it really helped. I didn't bring any notes because I didn't know we were doing this today. So I'm just going to try and remember some stuff. Um, but yeah, camp was really fun this year. And um, one of the things that kind of stood out to me um, that Mr. Tim was talking about was um, Elijah, um, he thought he was the only one left. He thought he was the only prophet and that everybody else was that it was just him serving God. It wasn't, there were other people too. But um, he obeyed God anyway, even though 
he thought it was hopeless and he thought he was the only one and he just wanted to die but um but he obeyed anyway and he trusted god and did everything that he said and i think that's really important that um trusting god is um more important than we realize and that um we can remember that god always has a plan um and then camp was really fun this year too um we got to see um, some of our friends um, that are Christians too, which is nice, and there was lots of fun activities. I really liked ice skating, that was fun. Um, but yeah, camp was really good this year, and that's really it. <laughs> uh, this is my first time at the winter camp, so it was an uh, interesting change from the summer one. It was shorter, but I really liked uh, one thing that was nice about the pastor is that he joined us in a lot of the activities we did. Like we went out to like paintball, and he was there on the field with us, and that allowed us to kind of create more of a bond with him. And I think that allowed me to listen to him a bit more, which is nice. Uh. Tim did an excellent job, as everybody's already recounted, very engaging, kept people's attention. Um, and as he, people, some people were saying um, that Elijah thought that he was the only one left. He said, I'm the only one left, God. There's no one else. There, there wasn't, but he thought that he was the only one less left. But he, he still obeyed, and Tim um, asked us, how, how did he obey um, in the face of knowing that it doesn't look all that great. The outcome's probably not going to be all that good. Um, he said he feared um, God more than men. And he asked um, all of us, whose opinion are you seeking? And he said, your declarations are useless. Your feet will tell who you fear. And um, one quote that he brought up um, has just stuck with me. Um, Leonard Ravenhill was an understudy of A.W. Tozer. And he said to A.W. Tozer in a conversation that they were having, um, he said, and in terms of the whole theme of the whole weekend of, you know, having one foot in the world and one foot um, in God's kingdom, um, Ravenhill said to A.W. Tozer, I think if we were able to withdraw the Holy Spirit from the world, we probably wouldn't notice much of a difference. I'm glad they covered the lessons. I tend to miss some of the lessons doing administrative things, so that helps. Um, we had the theme was a foot in two kingdoms, First Kings 18. Um, we had 37 campers, and one of those was a foreign exchange student from Croatia that is with a family um, attending Lemoyne right now. And we had nine staff uh, taking care of us. And um, let's see, we had first year Jared hasn't been with us for probably 10 years. Um, we have a new camp director now that's uh, Giles Heron has stepped up to fill those shoes. Good luck. <laughs> that's big shoes. Um, and so we're going to help transition him into summer camp as well. We were at camp MCYC over in Attica. Um, we had perfect winter weather. We were able to do sledding and snowing and like they say paintball even in the winter. I understand it just makes, if it's too cold, the paintballs will freeze and it's a little more painful. <laughs> so I don't know how they did, but um, 
we had um, uh, horseback riding and arch archery tag. That's an inside game amongst a lot of other games we do um, together. There's the camp cook said, um, I was mentioning the food, and she said, yeah, there's camp food, and then there's food at camp. And they have really good food there, so we really enjoy that. Um, and let's see, anything else? Um, we appreciate all the prayers from you guys while we're there and the prayers ahead of time while we're pre preparing. I don't know about the guys, but um, I know Jenny and I were able to have a, some good talks with some of the campers one-on-one -on -one that um, are really struggling with a lot of difficult things. So if you continue to pray for them, we appreciate it. So thank you all. All right, can you stand back up and turn to number 400, no, sorry, 170 in the Trinity. Stand and sing with me, 170, 170 in the Trinity.
I like my new stool. <laughs> Feel like Stanley <laughs> on TV. Romans 5 is our text today. In our last study, I tried to show that sometimes we make coming to Christ very difficult. I don't think we necessarily do this on purpose, but we who have been in the faith for many years and have learned more since our baby days sometimes forget that the average person on the street may be hearing the gospel for the very first time, just as we did many, many years ago. Then as now, people were in our face with impediments to coming to Christ. Things that give them pause. We suggested a few. Number one, ignorance of the gospel. God is near. He is not far. He's not hiding. He wants you to find him. A lot of people don't understand that. Secondly, preconceived assumptions that Christianity and religion are one and the same. Well, they're not. Or that salvation is half and half. Half us, half God. Each doing his part, and that's how you get saved. Thirdly, poor teaching that people can be saved in a twinny state. Either Loss, neither lost nor saved, but we learn from the book of Revelation that there's no such thing as an intermediary, lukewarm state with God. You're either hot or you're cold, but you're not in between. Why aren't we in between? Because God says if you're in between, he'll spit you out of his mouth. Have nothing to do with you. Get it together. Get hot, get cold, but don't be in the middle where you're kind of tepid. Nah. Fourthly, lack of humility. People that lack humility won't tolerate a salvation which is wholly dependent on a sovereign God and his will. And it's a pride thing there. Um, that's, that's what it's all about. And I've heard it so many times. But I had to believe. But I had to believe. And they say it just about that way. And they mean that they had a part in their salvation. And then number five, belief in exceptionalism, that God's universal statements of man and his rebellion and sin do not apply to them. All have sinned and fallen short of the grace of God. But these people, and there are people like that say, not me, not me. I'm living a good life. I don't need grace. I don't need Mercy. We also looked at some non-essentials for salvation. Things like despair, unbelief, hopelessness, fear, weeping, anguish. People got some strange ideas. And I think evangelists in the United States have done a great harm to people like that. Well, if you don't have fear and trembling, if you're not weeping when you're saved, if you're not wringing your hands in anguish, then, you, then you're probably not saved. Well, that's... All of those things were designed by evangelists in our country 
make people play on their emotions to come to Christ. If you're raised in a Christian community, Christian church, as a child and so forth, you probably never experienced any of those things. Becoming a Christian was kind of normal. Kind of just the usual thing because you were raised in that kind of environment. And yet your faith is genuine and it's real and you're trusting Christ and him alone and no one should take that away from you. Because God calls sinners to childlike faith, childlike faith and humility. You don't have to know theology. You don't have to know uh, the deep things. You have to know the simple things. And if a child can understand it, so can the unbeliever in the street. Now, you're going to have to put on your thinking cap today because Paul deals with things in this text in a way that we are not normally prone to consider. But think of the fact that this letter and its contents was written to Gentile believers, Gentile believers, and because they were Gentiles, they did not have the rich theological history of the Jewish converts. So my point is, if they could grasp these things, so can you and I. And it's important for all of us that we do grasp them. So as we come today to talk about the two Adams, let's ask for the Lord's enablement. Holy Father, send your spirit upon us that we might be enabled to preach and hear the word of God. I don't have anything to say that is going to benefit anybody, but your word does. And as I try to explain your word, give me the unction of thy spirit to do it right, not to distort in any way the truth of your word. And having said that, may your Holy Spirit come and bless the word of God itself, to reach into our heart with the sword that it is, to cut us, to cauterize us, to do whatever is necessary to bring faith and revive faith. And if we're slow and sluggish, if we're feeling down, Lord, lift us up by your word. Point us to Jesus and his cross and what he's accomplished for us. And we'll praise you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Today's text, Romans chapter 5, deals with the two Adams. And the first one I want to talk about is Adam the sinner. And you all know this guy. Adam the sinner. He is the Adam that God created out of the dust of the ground and into whom he breathed the breath of life. This is the Adam of the Garden of Eden. This is the Adam whom God made Lord of creation a ruler over the earth and its animal kingdoms. This is the Adam from whom God took a rib and fashioned a woman as his helper and wife, whom Adam named Eve. This is the Adam who had free run of paradise. This is the Adam who had but one rule, just one rule from God. (coughs) And that one rule was not to eat of the tree, In the midst of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which grew in the 
Garden of Eden. Genesis 2, verse 17. One rule. In a paradise, a pristine paradise at that. Now, how long Adam and Eve lived free of sin in the garden paradise, we do not know. It may have been years. Maybe. But the day came when the liar Satan deceived Eve with his promise that disobedience would make her wise like God. And she took of the forbidden fruit, she ate of it, she gave it to Adam who was right there with her, and he ate also. And everything changed for humanity and for all of creation from that day on. In other words, the curse of God kicked in. When you eat of it, the forbidden tree, you will surely die. Genesis 2 verse 17. And that happened that day. Paul picks up the narrative at this juncture by explaining in our text, Romans 5, the consequences of Adam's disobedience. Verse 12. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men because all sin. For before the law was given, sin was in the world. But sin is not taken into account when there is no law. Romans 5, verse 12 and 13. What happened as a consequence of Adam's disobedience. <clears throat> Number one, sin entered the world. In a previous study, we learned that this was not the beginning of sin. Sin was first found in heaven with the disobedience and revolt of Satan, who in his pride determined that he would attempt a coup to become like the Most High. In short, to displace God with himself. Well, instead, he was thrown out of heaven to the earth so that this planet and its inhabitants came under his influence. And Satan wasted no time lying to and deceiving Eve, convincing Adam to sin with her. Wow. And when Adam listened to his wife, he was also listening to Satan and buying into the lie that she had been told. And Paul tells us that this resulted in sin entering the world through one man. Sin entering through one man. If ever you had the thought that the actions of one person don't count for much, you need to think again. Through Adam's disobedience, the perfect man became the sinner man. The sinner man was destined to reproduce sinner children. And the sinner children were destined to spoil the earth and everything in it. You understand, plants do not sin. Animals do not sin. But mankind's sin, mankind's sin, spoils and destroys the beauty and the tameness and the serenity of these realms, plant and animal. In other words, paradise became poisoned. 
Innocence was lost. Sin entered the world. And nothing has been the same since. Nothing. Secondly, death came through sin. Sin is viewed here by Paul as a doorway. A floodgate through which death made its entrance. Hard to believe that that occurred, but it did. The the evolutionists are wrong in asserting that death has always been part of the natural world. That's what they teach. You say evolutionists need death. They need death to support Darwin's hypothesis of survival of the fittest. And by survival they mean the strong kill off the weak. So if you're killing off, there's death, right? In that scenario then, death is viewed as a friend. Think about it. You're killing off the weak. Whereas God calls death the last enemy that we must face. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 26. Because physical death is as John teaches us. It's the portal to what he calls the second death. Revelation 20 verse 14. He says it this way. The lake of fire is the second death. Satan, the murderer from the beginning, John 8, 44, convinces men that death is their friend. This is why suicides are at an all-time high in our country. It is also why euthanasia of the elderly or the retarded hold as much weight in modern thinking as it did in Nazi Germany. Let's just get rid of the old people. Let's make room for the new What about the retarded? Well, their life is ruined anyway, so let's just get rid of them. Death is viewed as a friend. But God sees no such friendship with death. Folks, God pronounced death as, get it now, a curse. A curse. His curse. For sin. Adam sinned. Death came. The curse became a reality for him and his posterity. Assad's reign of terror in his own country of Syria resulted in over 8,000 of his own countrymen, his own citizens, being murdered to date. 8,000 of his own people. I read the account of a father who snatched his children from a social worker at his door, bolted the door behind him, and proceeded to kill his boys in, and set the house on fire to destroy everything. And we cringe at that horror. And he did that so his wife wouldn't get the estranged children. What kind of ruler kills his own people? What kind of father murders his own children? We're horrified by such. But let me tell you, these accounts, these accounts pale 
in comparison to what Adam did. Adam killed the entire race. Every woman, every child, every man on earth was Adam, with, had Adam's nature associated with him. And his nature of sin nets them sin's wages, which is death. So Paul words it this way in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 22. In Adam all die. Well, thank you very much, Mr. Adam. In Adam all die. And Paul says, in this way, in our text, in this way, death came to all men. It came. In other words, death is not natural to creation. As the evolutionists would have us believe. It was, it is, a punishment of God for sin. So long as there is sin, death remains. But it was not so from the beginning. Something very, very bad happened to mess things up. And the very, very bad was Adam playing God. Adam opposing his subordinate role as a creature of God by attempting to be the master of his own destiny. And when Adam believed his own thinking to be as good as good as, or as superior to God's thinking, God slapped him with the promised curse of death. Now if it would have ended there, that would have been one thing. I think tragic in its own right, to be sure but not nearly so devastating as killing the entire race. Killing the entire race. And how did that happen? Well, because of Adam's representative headship. And I want to talk a little bit about this. His representative headship. According to Romans 5, verse 12, sin was introduced into our world through Adam, and death through sin. And then in verse 12, it says, In this way sin came to all men. Now notice the next phrase. Because all sinned. What do you think that means? I was to text to you that when most people read that phrase, because all sinned, they think, well, uh, of course, all of us are sinners. There's not one who is righteous, not even one, to quote Romans 3, verse 10. In other words, we define the phrase according to our own experience of being active sinners. And we are. We are active sinners, reaping what we sow in terms of sinful behavior. Let me suggest, however, that though this is taught elsewhere in Scripture, this is not what Paul is teaching here. Paul is dealing with something far more basic, far more extensive. He is talking about Adam and how Adam's sin ruined the race and brought death upon it. 
So when Paul says, because all sinned, he's not referring to personal sin, though that's true that we all sin personally, but rather he is referring to Adam's representative role in sin and the consequence of his sinful representation. How do we know that? Well, if you are reading from the King James Version, you will see that verse 13 and 14 are in parenthesis. Or if you are reading from the NIV or the ESV, Romans 5, there will be a dash mark after verse 12. And what this means is that Paul is intentionally interrupting himself in his thought processes. He's thinking that he had better take some time to explain what he means by the words, because all sinned. He knows that people are going to miss the point he's trying to make about Adam's representative role if they think of this to mean their own personal sins. So he interrupts his own thoughts with this explanation. For before the law was given, before the law was given, sin was in the world. But sin is not taken into account when there's no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over over those who did not sin, did not sin, by breaking a command as did Adam, who was a pattern of the one to come. Romans 5, verse 13 and 14. From our side of history, we know that sin is defined as breaking the law of God. We all know that. Our minds go to the Ten Commandments in which God laid down his moral code. And if we break one of those commands, we recognize such as being sin. In fact, John the Apostle says sin is lawlessness, that is breaking God's law. 1 John 3 verse 4. Okay, so far so good. But what do we say about all those generations that existed before the law of Moses... Before it was given. Paul says, verse 13, Before the law, sin was in the world. Whoa. How do we know sin was in the world before the law? Because people died, which is the wages of sin. Now here is the question. Why did they die? You say, they sinned. Oh, but verse 13 of our text says, sin is not taken into account. It's not reckoned. It's not counted. It's not calculated. When there's no law. Whoa. Which is exactly what we have from the time between Adam and Moses. So if God does does not and did not count something as sin when there's no law prohibiting it, why did people die? Why did they experience the wages of sin? Several years ago or so, many years now, uh, the Michigan legislation banned smoking in public areas probably most significant 
in all restaurants. Do you remember that? Prior to that, the best we had was designated areas in a restaurant if you wanted to smoke, and you had to choose between smoking or non-smoking as you went into the restaurant. The maitre d' would ask you that question. Do you remember that? How many remember that? Yeah. What's the point? The point is, prior to the ban, no smoker could be accused of the infraction because the ban wasn't in place. Now that the ban was, is in place, everyone understands the new rule and all the restaurants comply. Now a smoker could not be accused of breaking the law before the ban was in place. But the ban changed the status of all smokers in public places. Now it is a violation of the law to smoke in those areas. And the thought was that the secondhand smoke, people would be breathing that, and they've proven that they also get sick from that. But I want you to observe Paul's analysis in verse 14. He says, nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam. Now that's because there was no law to break, as yet. But, ten commandments are no. Death was still having a heyday. People died by the thousands. One thinks of the judgment of God on Sodom and Gomorrah. Whole cities wiped out. One thinks of the flood. A whole culture, a world of people was wiped out. There were wars. There was old age. There was disease. There were accidents and so on and so on. Death was everywhere. How could this be? The answer, through identification with Adam's sin as the representative of the race. In Adam all die. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 22. The same point Paul is making in our text. What is this? Well, let me explain it to you. This is the doctrine of federal headship. We don't normally think of this, but it's there. Because Adam was the first man, his actions are central to everything that follows. Da-boom, 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 right on down through all of humanity. When he sinned, you and I sinned with him. In him, because we were there, in him, in his loins, in his progenitive seed. And we cannot disallow this union. We cannot say, I am not a son and daughter of Adam and Eve. Yes, you are, whether you think about it or not. By the way, Remember the uh, human genome process, uh, I can't even speak, 
project, the Human Genome Project <clears throat> that our country did here some years back, well, many years now, they concluded that all of us, every person, every race, from every culture, has issued from one female seed, giving new support to Eve, that the scripture calls the mother of all living, Genesis 3, verse 20. Amen. And by implication, sons and daughters of Adam who fathered us. We all have one parent. They've come up with that conclusion scientifically. Of course, Adam, who fathered. During the Civil War of our country, certain southern states tried to cede from the federal government. They tried to disallow their role in the Union, and they were called rebels. Blue bellies of the northern armies were identified as Union soldiers, Union soldiers, because one of the major tenets of the war was to preserve the Union. Like it or not, Adam is the unifying figure of the entire human race. He stands as the first man. He stands or we stand or fall with him. When he fell, therefore we fell in him. And that is why death came upon all of his posterity. <laughs> you can say, and probably do say, I don't like this business of representation. This just doesn't seem fair. I was there in Adam's loins, yes. But I wasn't conscious. I didn't vote yes or no on anything. And yet I am reaping what he sowed. So I don't like this principle of him representing me because he's the first man. Do you know that he was the perfect representation? He was. He was the perfect man. Sinless in creation, living in a sinless environment, restricted by only one regulation, possessor of all his faculties, mental, spiritual, physical. But we, on the other hand, are sinners by birth, sinners by choice, living in a cursed environment, restricted by multiple rules from God, weak in our understanding, defective spiritually, we by ourselves, accountable only for our own sin, would never do as well as Adam did. And yet, he sinned and killed the race. I'm thankful, though, very thankful, that's not the end of the story. It's not the end of the story. The end of the story is that Jesus is talked about in Scripture as the last Adam. What's with this Adam business? By the way, the last Adam, not the second Adam or the third Adam or the fourth Adam. The last Adam, there's two Adams. There's Adam in Genesis, and there's Christ as the last Adam. 
What's that mean? It means that Jesus is the representative head of his people. What we disdain in Adam's representation, because he was such a failure, we should come to appreciate in Jesus because he was such a success. Wow. There are differences, of course, between Adam, the first man, and Jesus, the last Adam. But observe, firstly and foremost, the similarities. That's the key point. Just as Adam represented humanity to the degree that his actions affected all whom he represented, okay, so Christ represents his people to the degree that his actions affect all whom he represents. Oh, I... Getting to see here this principle of representation. Paul puts it this way. Since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. Oh, I never thought of it that way. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 21. He goes on, verse 15. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that he gave by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? What's he saying? Adam was a killer. That's what he's saying. But Jesus is a dispenser of grace, of saving grace. Different. Very different. Again, the gift is not like the result of the one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation. That's what Adam got you. But the gift followed, oh, many transgresses, many trespasses, but it brought justification. Romans 5. Where sin abounded, what happened? Grace, much more. Much more, much more about it. Hallelujah. Adam the sinner killed the race. Jesus the Savior saves the race. And if it be true that in Adam all die, the rest of the verse is also true. So in Christ all will be made alive. Those that are in Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 22. Now the principle involved here is the same, namely, that people die because of their union with sinful Adam, and people live because of their union with Jesus, the Savior and the giver of life eternal. The representative headship applies in both situations. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, that is a body of clay, he came to life. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 45. That is resurrection from being spiritually dead. Hallelujah. The greater miracle given, not earned, for being united in Christ and his work. That's the greater miracle. 
Because of all of this, Adam is called, in theology, a type of Christ. T-Y-P-E, a type of Christ. Now, he's not Christ, but he's a type of Christ. What's that mean? Well, the Greek word for type sounds like it, tupas. George will know something about this. It means the mark left by a die that's stamped in metal when George worked in that industry. I'm sure there was a lot of dies that were stamping out parts in the auto industry. And the metal that is produced bears the type or imprint of whatever that die was. Whatever that part was. Probably most of us would think of the minting, <clears throat> the minting of coinage. You would be right. This is how the word was first used. A die is pressed hard into a malleable metal, and in so doing, it leaves its mark, its image, in that metal. Well, believe it or not, Adam of Eden is a type, a stamped image for the one to come, namely Jesus Christ. Now, not in every way. (laughs) Not as a sinner, not as a disobedient creature of God, but as a pattern of one who, as a man, the God-man, represents a nation of people for life. Representative headship with similarities. Contrasts, however, are as important as the similarities. Verse 17, for if by the trespass of one man death reigned through one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life? Through the one man, Jesus Christ. Consequently, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. For justice through the disobedience of the one man The many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. Romans 5, 17 and following. So what we have here is the great reversal of all the damage that the first Adam did. Wow. Every bad thing, every judgment for sin, every consequence for being a identified with sinful Adam, is reversed in the last Adam. This is why you need Jesus more than ever. To be represented by the first Adam, all that has to be done is for you to be born as a human being. That's it. Big deal. Money, you can deny that. You're, You're born. You're here as a human being. You're Adam's children. You like it or not, you're still his child. 
because he was the father of the race, as Eve was the mother of the race. If you're human, Adam is your father. Eve is your mother. That's all you have to do to be a child of Adam. Just be here as a human being born. To be represented by the last Adam, Jesus Christ, you have to be born again. Oh. This time, not of the flesh, but born of the Spirit. Born by the Holy Spirit. As Jesus taught Nicodemus, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and of the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh. Spirit gives birth to spirit. You shouldn't be surprised at my saying you must be born again. John 3, verse 5 and following. That's the similarities. Nature produces nature. You've got to have the nature changed in order for you to reap the rewards of that nature. Now there's a great contrast as well as similarity. There's a great contrast between the two Adams. I've already hinted at it. Natural, supernatural. Got it? Natural, supernatural. Verse 15. The gift, Paul says, is not like the trespass. That's the first contrast. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Now don't get hung up on the word many. When we hear many, we think numerically. We think quantitatively. But Paul is thinking of the union of the race under Adam. The union of saved, being saved with Christ. He's not thinking quantitatively. So when he speaks of the many who died as a result of Adam's sin, he means all people because, as he already has noted elsewhere, in Adam all die. We're all related to Adam. And we have his nature. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 22. And again, when he says that God's grace or gift of grace, that is life, life eternal, overflowed to many, he means on the many who are the recipients of this grace, that is, believers, who are in unity with Jesus Christ by faith. So, what is the contrast between the many of Adam and the many of Christ? The contrast. Well, to be among the many recipients of Adam's trespass and therefore the curse of death, all you have to do is be born. That's it. You just have to be a human being. Death is part of the curse. The curse is now part of the natural world in which we live. God doesn't have to do anything for you to die. Adam did that for you. 
For nature to take its course, as people talk about, as we say, you just have to be a human being. That's it. But, and here is, here's the contrast. For a person to come under the federal representation of Christ, to benefit from his gift of life, one must have a supernatural work performed by God himself, the giver of life, the Christ of eternal life. And the important contrast here is you don't earn this. You do not inherit it with Adam's sinful nature. It's a gift of God's grace. For the wages of sin is death. But the gift, ah, the gift is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 6, verse 23. So the contrast is that all men die in Adam and all believing have new life in Christ. That's the contrast. Amen. And as a result, there is a contrast not only in the position of each one of us, but there is a contrast in the effects of the two Adam's representation. What do we get from Adam and what do we get from Christ? You know, when, you, when you're talking about things of cause and effect, you want to know what the effects are going to be. Well, the effect of Adam's behavior is one sin... What was the effect? The effect was judgment and condemnation for all of the race. Oh, whoopee. Father Adam acquired for us judgment and condemnation. Now, if we just stop here and could say of Adam that he only committed this one sin. It was such a sin through his representation, as we have seen, that killed the whole race. And only the blood of Jesus could have eradicated the effects of that one sin. But we know that's hypothetical because there has followed... All of Adam's remaining 930 years, that's how long he lived, Genesis 5.5, in which he sinned again and again and again. And his posterity continued to sin. Cain, Abel, the millions of people committing billions of sins. One sin and they were all condemned and many Many sins followed. One act of righteousness resulted in justification for all who were followers of Christ. With Jesus' gift of life, it followed many trespasses, Paul says, resulting in justification. What's justification? Salvation is another word for it. We have one hymn in our hymn book that says, Oh, the love that sought me. 
Oh, the blood that bought me. Oh, the grace that brought me to the fold. Wondrous grace that brought me to the fold. So there's a great contrast in the effects of the two atoms in their representation. And then there's the final contrast, which I'm just going to mention. There's the reign of death. That's what Adam got for us. Versus the reign of life. Verse 17. Notice the phrase. God's abundant provision of grace we know that the bible teaches that all of creation is waiting waiting for the return of jesus when the curse of god will be lifted off of creation and everything will be renewed we think of this as restoration And our thoughts go to such things as Eden being restored. Most importantly, humanity restored to where it was before Adam sinned. But far more is promised. The phrase Paul uses is abundantly above all that we ask or think. Ephesians 3 verse 20. Those redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ are not simply rescued from the effects of the fall and restored on the shelf. But we are to reign in life. I'm reading scripture. Reign in life through Jesus Christ. Romans 5.17 Dr. Lloyd-Jones comments, on his work in Romans. He words it this way. It is not only that we are forgiven. But over and above being forgiven. The righteousness of Jesus Christ is put to our account. The righteousness of Christ. Is put to our account. Unfallen Adam was righteous, but it was his own righteousness as a created being. I'm still quoting Lloyd-Jones. It was the righteousness of a man. And never, Adam never had the righteousness of Jesus Christ upon him. What he lost was his own righteousness. But you and I are not merely given back a human righteousness The righteousness that Adam had before he fell. No. We are given the righteousness of Jesus Christ. This is mind-boggling, folks. We are given the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Much more. Abundance. Superabundance. We are given full weight of it. We receive this abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness. End quote from Lloyd-Jones. So just as there is a reign of death for all whose union goes no further than with sinful Adam, so there is a reign of life 
for all who by faith are united to the righteous Jesus. Wonder what it is for you. What is it for you? I know you are a child of sinful fallen Adam by birth, but are you a child of Christ Jesus through rebirth? That's the question. You cannot escape the association with Adam until and unless you are reborn by the spirit of the last Adam. And there's no third Adam, by the way, and fourth Adam, and so on. No, no. All humanity consists of but two groups. Slaves of the first Adam because of his sin, or slaves of Jesus Christ because of his righteousness. Adam's slavery ends in judgment and condemnation, verse 18. Jesus' one act of righteousness resulted in justification or salvation for his people. Only Jesus can free us from the consequence of Adam's headship. Verse 21. Just as sin reigned in death, see verse 14, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's the supreme, supreme court of the universe stating that. Wow. Who's the eternity of who's the attorney of the Supreme Supreme Court? The Bible answered is Jesus Christ. There is one God and one mediator, one attorney before God and man, and that is the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. That is all kinds of men. First Timothy 2, verse 5. When we stand before the judgment seat of God, it's going to be the judgment seat of Christ. And the person that's going to defend us before God Almighty is... God's own son, our advocate, our lawyer. What a comfort to think about this. My lawyer, before the judge of the universe, is my savior. He takes his salvation to the very courts of heaven, not just here on earth but into the eternal courts that determines my eternal state. Where am I going to be for eternity? What's going to happen to me for all of eternity? I have a lawyer pleading my case before the throne of Almighty God, and that lawyer is Jesus Christ, who pleads his own blood and his own sacrifice for me. Do you have that lawyer? For you, you can by faith in Christ. Thank you, Lord, for your word. We are humbled also by your great, wonderful, wonderful intercession. We couldn't have a better defense attorney than you.
I pray that we'll see that we need this defense attorney. We need someone who can plead our case other than us pleading our case. If we stand before the tribunal of God Almighty, we are going to be condemned to hell's fire forever and ever. But if we can stand before the tribunal of God on the merit of Jesus Christ and what he did for us as a substitute, as a stand-in, we shall be exonerated. Not because of anything we are, but because of everything he is. Honor and bless your word, we pray, Lord Jesus. Honor yourself, save whom you will. Amen. Amen. From the Brown Hymnal, our closing hymn is four. Nine three four nine three. I hope you can sing the hymn and that it's really true when we sing, Is it well with my soul? 493 in the brown hymnal. Let's stand as we sing.
you started, and then he's going to drop out. All right, they will drop out. Ready? It's well with your soul. What a glorious Savior we have to put up with the likes of us and to save us and cleanse us and say, You're my child and I have a place for you in glory. We sing in the end, there's a new name written down in glory and it's mine. It's mine. I hope that's true of everyone here. Can be by faith in Christ. It's why he came. It's why he died. It's why we look forward to being with him in glory. We are dismissed. Thank you. <laughs>